We find ourselves in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Let me read it, and we will pray. It says, Besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day uh, and the daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, open your word this evening, we ask that you would open our hearts. I believe that uh, this passage applies to all of us in some sense. So may your spirit not only open our hearts, but our ears, convict us where we need to be convicted, and give us grace to follow through and be obedient to your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Whew, here we go. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, you'll notice in your uh, outline, it's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you have basically three points, wake up, put off, put on. Um, number one under wake up, knowing the times. Uh, letter A, notice the, the time words that are used in verses 11 and 12a. It says, it is high time, the night is far spent, Salvation is nearer, and the day is at hand. Uh, Paul is using four phrases that deal with time because he wants them to catch the idea, now is the time. You know what's going on. You know what's coming, so let's deal with this thing. Uh, Letter B, the urgency of the admonition for obedience. Uh, First thing we need to recognize is, if Paul is bringing out the idea that this is an urgent thing, you need to get on top of this thing. Here we are 2,000 years later. How urgent is it? Is it urgent? Yeah, exactly. Um, because if it was urgent then, and we've gone 2,000 years. Now, for most people, going 2,000 years when it was urgent... It's kind of like, well, I guess the urgency passed and we don't need to worry about it. But his whole point here is it's, it's at the door and it's not leaving. So therefore, if it's urgent then, it's really got his hand on the doorknob, about to open the door. We really need to catch this. Uh, think about uh, in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I come I'm going to get around to it. No, he says what, Mike? Quickly. Now, we, being dispensational in our approach of, of interpreting scripture, uh, scripture look at uh, the book of Revelation as being written somewhere in the mid-90s A.D. And he said, Behold, I come quickly. Now, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is a day for the Lord. He operates outside of time. He operates in time, but he lives outside of time. So for him, 2,000 years when you have an eternity behind you is a long time or a short time? It's a short time. So again, if it was urgent in Paul's day, it is that much more urgent today. That brings us to number two there, 
always urgent until the Lord's return. Uh, consider the signs of his return. Uh, when you think about the things that Paul, uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, he gave us uh, four signs, uh, maybe five, depending on how you want to count them, uh, of his return. Now, they are ultimately fulfilled in the first four seals in the book of Revelation. But there has always been wars and rumors of wars, famine and pestilence, false teachers. Always been since he ascended into heaven. Shortly thereafter, I mean, one of the things that we're studying on Wednesday night is Jerusalem meets Rome. That's where the church goes from Jerusalem out into the, uh, the world. It meets Rome, and it finds Babylon. And the whole idea of Babylon is that which is anti-Christ. And both back then as well as now, it makes every effort to either stop the church, get into the church and people's thinking so that it can own them, if you will. And so with that in mind, we're talking in the first century, Paul is writing 30 years after Christ's death, he's writing Colossians, dealing with the seeds of Gnosticism, which doesn't really become a false doctrine until the second uh, uh, century, but the seeds are already there. How about the book of Galatians? When you have second temple Judaism adding to God's word through the pharisaical interpretation of Scripture, you know, if God said you're not to do any work on the Sabbath, what does that mean? Well, if you're walking through a field and you harvest some wheat and go like this and blow off the chaff and eat it, you were doing work. If your neighbor's donkey falls into a ditch... And you don't like your donkey. I mean, your neighbor. Well, it could be the same thing. Uh, if they go and get that donkey out, well, he was working on the Sabbath. If it's your donkey, it's okay to get him out because, see, within that Judaistic thinking, that legalistic thinking, uh, they were adding to God's Word. God never said you couldn't get your donkey out of the ditch. Never said you couldn't be walking through a field and get a little bit of wheat in your hand and, and have lunch. But they did. Uh, you could not walk more than a half a mile as far as they were concerned on the Sabbath. Where do you find that in Scripture? Not there. Okay? So whole point being is false teaching has always been a part of our history, and of course it is still going on. So when you consider the signs of his return, they've always been there, since uh, uh, been present since he left. Uh, notice each, gener each generation has those that question the Lord's return. In 2 Peter 3, 4, again, first century writing, the, uh, the, these people are saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, he's only been gone for about 30 years when Peter writes this. And they're saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so they're not really looking for the Lord's return. In fact, they're doubting it. So that brings us to number two. Knowing the times, uh, in the verse, you need to do this. This carries the idea of achieving something in addition to what has already been stressed. Let me go back and read a little bit of the context. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. 
and whatever other commandment are all summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Now notice the next phrase. Besides this, so we're adding something to loving your neighbor. What are we going to add? Because we know the time, and we have the various time verses there, uh, that brings us to this part. Do this. Okay? So number a uh, letter B. Never arrive at a place where you are no longer indebted at, to serve God. Now, what do I mean by that? <laughs> I want to give you an example. But, of course, that example is going to make some people either have to justify themselves or uh, make excuse for It is very easy to feel as though I have served and therefore let someone else do it. If you go back and look in the little garbage can, you're going to find all kinds of those little cups that we have communion out of. How hard is it when you leave to pick up your cup and bring it back there and put it in the garbage can? Yes, I know. It's not hard. And yet, came in here tonight and Lynn and I cleaned up all the cups. Hopefully we didn't miss any there, Mike. <laughs> so you don't have to do it during the week. But a lot of cups in the pew. In, in fact, you know how each one, uh, each uh, hymnal holder has two on this side, two on that side? I found two pews that every single one of them had a cup in. Kind of like, okay, those were two full pews. Now, if you sat in a full pew this morning, you might consider whether or not that was you. But why do we think someone else has to do that? We've got a garbage can back here. Oh, well, it's not important. Never come to the place where you don't feel as though you are not indebted to serve God. Picking up the cup is part of your service. Um, Working in the nursery, part of your service. And yeah, guaranteed, we're going to have women in there, I understand. And you women, you, you know, you're, some of you are mothers, and you have to deal with those kids all week long. <gasps> Isn't it horrible? My whole point is, never come to a place where you don't feel as though you have to serve God. How about pastors talking about having a, going through and making a list of things that need to be done to do a spring cleaning before Passover? So somewhere in a rush, we expect we're going to have a work day. Do we need a work day? Or do you need to see the list of things that needs to be done and decide to come in when it's convenient for you? Yeah, and, and we've done that in the past too. Not everything on the list gets taken care of. And therefore we have a work day. And then we have a work day. Let me see, there was 175 people here last week, 162 people here this morning, and we might get a dozen people. And people are busy. A lot of things to do. Never come to a place where you don't feel as though you need to serve. Now, your serving may be whatever you're doing that day someplace else. Understand, don't have a problem with that, okay? Just saying, watch the attitude, because besides this, we need to be doing this, okay? So let's see some of the things we're supposed to do. Uh, First of all, the word for time in this uh, passage is not chronos, which is talking about chronological time, but it's kairos, which is dealing with an era or an age. Okay, so it is high time. 
It is the right century. It's the right decade. It's the right uh, age to be involved in this service, okay? Uh, And it refers to the time preceding the parousia or the parousia, uh, the coming of Christ. Hmm. So when were we expecting him to come? Well, let me just go back and read Peter's verse again. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? He's written this approximately 30 years after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. People are always already saying, he hasn't come back. So probably won't. Here we are 2,000 years ago. People are still saying the same kind of thing. Well, guess what? He's coming back. So anytime before his return, you ought to be about the business of doing this. That's the idea. But it's been 2,000 years. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. One of the reasons why I, uh, in setting up the scripture memory, I chose verses on hope is because, well, if you have any amount of years in this life, you realize since my birth, this country has changed a lot. Okay? We've gone from being relatively free. Yeah, we had our issues. We've always had our issues. Just like this church has its issues. It will always have its issues. Why? Because people are involved in it. Okay? So, but when you look at the 60s compared to today, kind of like, wow, uh, the government really has moved into a lot of areas that just really none of their business. In fact, one could say directly contrary to the Constitution of the United States. Been a lot of changes. We see as we're looking forward in time where those changes might actually bring us as a country, and it's easy to lose hope. And one of the things that we as God's people need to remember is we have a hope. We have a hope regardless of what the circumstances are. And so, 13 verses, hopefully, if you're not participating, maybe uh, you'll be convicted enough to pick up a card. I can make more. That's not a problem. But uh, look, we have a hope, and therefore, uh, we should uh, be looking forward to Jesus' coming. Number three, and now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Notice the vowel. It's not woke. It's awake. Okay. Now, I say that because some people, uh, basically on that side of things, are using the terminology pretty much the same way, even though they uh, you know, don't always understand tenses. But they don't understand genders and a lot of other things, too. So, uh, but that's okay. It is high time to wait, awake out of sleep. Many believers share the same blindness as unbelievers. Don't believe me. Well, let let me show you as we get along here. Uh, Notice the word for sleep here is hypnos, uh, which means sleep, uh, spiritual torpor. I think that's supposed to be stupor, but oh well. Uh, Sleep. It is a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place around them. I think it was last Sunday afternoon, I was really, really tired, and I'm sitting there in the easy chair, I've leaned it back, the TV is on, there's grandkids screaming and running around the house all over the place, and somewhere in the rush, I was asleep. I was hearing the noise, but I was totally unresponsive to it. I knew things were going on, but I was asleep. 
Not asleep like I sleep at night, but I was asleep. That's the idea here, okay? Um, Paul calls them to awaken from spiritual sleep. Now, this is not the only book that he said this. Look look at Ephesians 5.14. It says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead. Now, that could be picture, but... uh, he uses the terminology, and Christ will give you light. What happens in the light? You can see what's going on. When your eyes are closed, you're unresponsive to the events that are going on. You're missing it. Things are darkened. Here he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead. Christ will give you light. How about in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-four? Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, in this particular case, he's basically saying, wake up, start living right. Why? Because it's having an effect on the people around you. Some people are not seeing Christ in you. And that, he says, to their shame. How about 1 Thessalonians? So here you got the Ephesians church, you got the Corinthian church, you got the Roman church. Now we have the Thessalonian church. Chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The idea of watching is you're actually looking. You're, you're trying to see what's actually going on. Uh, therefore, you can respond to the events that are going on around you. As far as being sober, uh, the word basically means uh, sober. <laughs> it, it means you're, uh, you're in your right mind. You're not being influenced by something else. So that's the idea there. Uh, Number four, for now, here's why you need to awake out of your sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I always thought this verse was kind of silly because, of course, it is nearer. I have been saved for 41 years. So if I was saved 41 years ago and salvation was near, salvation in the sense of actually being with the Lord, glorified, and that kind of stuff, 41 years has passed here on earth. So obviously we're closer to his return than back there, even though it could have happened back there, but we're obviously closer. So I always thought it was kind of silly that he says this, but notice letter A, the completion of our salvation at the appearing of Christ. We know what happens when Christ comes back in the clouds. Those that are dead in Christ or asleep in Christ, not sleep in this sense, but they have passed from this life and their bodies are presently buried or destroyed by fire, eaten by fish, whatever the case may be, not a problem for God. Those bodies are going to be resurrected. Their souls came with Jesus and He's going to put that soul back in that body, and we aren't going before them. They're not going before us. They get raised eight, nine feet, and then we're all good and going together. At which point, this mortal puts on immortality. This uh, corrupted puts on incorruptibility. Now, it's one thing to say all of a sudden it's going to be incorrupted, but it's another thing, incorruptibility. There's no longer going to be the chance of being corrupted, okay? Okay? And then we're going to be caught up 
That's the word for uh, rapture. Uh, it's the, uh, a different Greek word, and rapturo is the Latin word that came from the Greek word, but it just means caught up. We're going to be caught up together with him in the air, and thus we're going to be with him forever. So that's what we're talking about, the completion of our salvation. When this mortal puts on immortality, I'm going to be experiencing that which I have been saved for. Because now I'm going to live forever. Uh, when this corrupted, because I'm born in sin, I've had plenty of opportunities to prove that, and I will until the day I die. But in the day that I die or in the day of the rapture, uh, the, incor- the corrupted puts on incorruptibility. No longer will I ever look at something that's a sinful temptation and say, oh, yeah, i got to get me some of that. Nope. Yeah, no, that's not pleasing to God. I'm not going to do it. Now, thankfully, he's worked in my life where practically we're seeing that kind of stuff happen already, but it's going to come to a point where there's never going to be a failure again. Okay? And so uh, that is the idea of the uh, future, uh, the completion of our salvation. Letter B, the future and final dimension of redemption, that is glorification. Now, I haven't talked about the judgment seat of Christ. That's all part of this process. Uh, people fear that. The reality is, is if you could take anything of you into heaven, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. So we're gonna, th- that's, that's all going to burn up. And what you bring is that which you did for Christ while you were living here. Uh, so let's look at uh, the concept of salvation. First of all, we have justification. This refers to declared and positional righteousness. When God justified us, he said, you who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now righteous in my eyes. How did he do that? Christ lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He dies to pay for our sin. Our sin was imputed to him. And when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us or put on our account. So God declares us to be righteous. Are we righteous in our practice? Not for a while. Okay? And when I say not for a while, we're never perfectly righteous in our practice until this future completion of our salvation. Through sanctification, the next word, we see where practically that stuff gets worked out. Notice it refers to the lifelong process of spiritual growth producing practical righteousness, where you're putting your faith into practice on a day-to-day basis. Notice, though, how long is it going to take? Lifelong process. I remember when we were down in Brazil, I was teaching uh, some of the Brazilian young people uh, the song, Who Let the Dogs Out? Now, that's the only part of the song I know. Okay, so just before you think, what an ungodly person. Who let the dogs out? Who? Who? You know, that kind of thing. So I translated it into Portuguese. We were kind of singing and making fun of it. And uh, one of the missionaries said, you know, I'm pretty sure some people are not going to be perfect until they see Christ. And my wife said, I'm pretty sure that's all of us. Because that is the truth. We're all in that sanctification process. Some of us might skip ahead a little bit quicker than others, but uh, none of us are going to arrive until we get there. And that brings us to the third part of our salvation, glorification. It refers to the believer's ultimate perfection. In Romans 8.23, not only that, 
But we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. That's what he's talking about here. When we're finally totally redeemed, okay? That's the salvation that is nearer than when we first believed. Let us see the eschatological motive, our hope of Christ's imminent return. It is used by Paul as a reminder to live sensibly. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Catch this? Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? He's come once. His coming taught us we should be living a certain way. And within that, we're looking forward to his return. And then, of course, we have the writer of Hebrews for mutual edification. In uh, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, most people know verse 25 as, you should not not go to church. You should really be going. And, and in context, that's what it means. It doesn't mean you have to be here on Sunday night. Though I wish I thank you for coming and wish some more of you would. It goes on to say, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day? Jesus' return. Okay? James, in James chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, talks about uh, this in the sense of being patient. In James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, it says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. In other words, get them sitting on that good foundation of the Word of God, right? Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then, of course, Peter also uses it to be sober-minded and to have fervent love for one another, 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8. But the end of all things is at hand. The idea of being at hand, it's right there. Okay, the door is about to be open. And again, Peter's speaking all the way back in around 60-some-odd A.D., maybe 50 for First Peter. But uh, it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Again, that verse basically says, Because you love one another, sometimes you're going to overlook some of the things that people do. do. Because you know that God's working on them. He's going he's gonna to bring them to uh, maturity. And in the meantime, okay, they don't understand. I, I can try and teach them, but they also have to ears to hear, you know. But in the meantime, I can forgive them, okay? So Paul uses it to uh, remind us to be sober-minded, have fervent love. Number two, there is no condemnation. Now, I hope you all know that for believers there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus, right? 
But there still is the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. You know, there are things that, in this particular case, Paul's saying, I I don't think it's a big thing that you're judging me. I don't even judge myself. As far as I know, I haven't done anything wrong. But I also know my heart. I can fool myself. And so don't judge anything before it's time. We'll see when uh, Christ comes back. Now, he's talking about ministry a little bit more there uh, than whether or not something is sinful or just a disputable item. Okay, so there is no condemnation, but there still is a judgment. Number five, the night has far spent, the day is at hand. Man's time of spiritual unbelief, rebellion, and sin is about to end. Now, here I'm saying this now, and when's it going to happen? During the tribulation, God is going to be bringing all the judgment that ultimately brings all of this to its end. And I say end in the sense that when we get into the millennial kingdom, who's going into the millennial kingdom? Unglorified believers. They're going to have children who are unglorified. Who are going to have children who are unglorified? Who are going to have children who are unglorified? For a thousand years, to our knowledge, no one dies except for the one that's openly rebellious. It says a child will die at the age of a hundred, and he who dies at the age of a hundred will be considered accursed. Cursed? Why? Apparently he was openly rebellious because Christ is ruling with a rod of iron, as Pastor brought up this morning. Okay? But as far as we know, people are living for that whole thousand years. When the time is up, Satan is loosed, what happens? I'm going to leave that for pastor's message next week. (laughs) Uh, He raises up an army that's without number, all these unbelievers. So, yeah, he's going to have to put down a rebellion again. And by the way, he does so just by the word of his mouth. There's not even a battle. Boom, it's done. Okay? But... uh, So whole point being here, uh, it's about to end. When we're looking at it, we're looking future, rapture, uh, tribulation, boom, second coming. Christ puts an end to things. It looks like it's still up there someplace. But here Paul is saying it's about to end in his day. Why? Because maybe he was looking forward to Christ's return in his day. Okay? Uh, Number one under that. Uh, Though it seems to be getting worse, well, guess what? The Bible said it was going to get worse. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 3 3-7, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens of old were of old in the earth, standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, 
being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. We're not going to do it here tonight. But we see that um, it, 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 we, we think it's getting worse. Well, the reality is, is Jesus said, like it was in the days of Noah. Noah was preaching for a hundred years while he was building the ark. Uh, some people think that it was, God said, well, I'm going to give him 120 years. Therefore, Noah's building the ark for 120 years. No, he started building it about 20 years into that time because God had to get him in the right place, tell him what to do, get the wood uh, rounded up and all that kind of stuff. They start building it when Shem is born and when they entered the ark, Shem is 100 years old. Okay, just letting you know that. Um, but during that hundred years, you know, a lot of people were thinking, this guy is crazy. And somewhere in the rush, he's probably having time to say why he's doing what he's doing. Well, it's going to rain. What's rain? We don't even, there's never been rain. What are you talking about rain? What do you mean the Lord's going to come back and take his people? It hasn't happened. See, pretty much the same kind of argument, uh, that kind of thing. Notice, God is allowing uh, all that's happening, including the getting worse part. Why? Because he is patient. In verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter, 2 Peter 3, it says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So as bad as it's gotten in my lifetime, how much worse is it going to get? I don't know, but I can tell you that ultimately during the tribulation, the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit, restraining sin, going to be removed, and it's going to be worse than it is now. Right now, we just find ourselves in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Then, I mean, the Spirit of God's still restraining sin to some measure. He stepped back, but he's not gone in that uh, capacity. But during the tribulation, yeah, I think it's going to be a whole lot worse. And uh, God is patient. He, he tolerates, puts up with. Why? Because I'm still about the business of saving people. Okay, so that brings us to letter B. God's time of judgment, glory, and righteousness is about to begin. Now, uh, it, because I, did I? No, I didn't. Uh, I actually wanted to open up to 1 Thessalonians here. Uh, so if you want to go over there with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's amazing. Uh, one page can be three chapters. <laughs> Verses 1 to 8. It says... About the times of the uh, about the times and the seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you. Obviously, he had taught them about this stuff. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them, like labor pangs come on uh, a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in the dark for this day to overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, we must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be serious, 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put on the armor of faith and love on our chests and put the, on a helmet of uh, the hope of salvation. So you notice this is one of those passages that talks about waking up. And it's directly in reference to, we know the Lord's coming back. We know it's going to get bad. So instead of worrying about it, walk with the Lord. That's, that's basically the idea. So the second point of our message tonight, verses 12b through 13, is put off. Uh, the illustration given here is of a soldier on leave needing to get ready to, uh, and to get back into the battle. So he, he's been on a weekend leave, whatever the case is, and now he comes back to his ship, his platoon, whatever the case is, and he's got to have the uniform, he's got to have the right mindset, he's got to be ready for whatever uh, is coming. Uh, that's the picture given here. He says, let us cast off. Now, this is not a strange concept to these people uh, or to the New Testament church. You can see in Ephesians 4.22, Colossians 3.8.9, Hebrews 12.1a, uh, we see the same concept. Let me read a couple here. Uh, Ephesians 4.22, that you put off concerning, concerning your former conduct, the old man. Now, the old man, he died when you trusted Christ. But because the law of sin in your members, you're still maybe hanging on to some of the old sinful habits. And he's saying, no, put those off. He's not saying put the old man off. He's been dealt with. Put off the conduct of the old man, which grows. Notice that. That is a present active indicative. So that law of sin in your members, it is still active. Uh, and it grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Why, why do you think Satan bombards us with wherever your, your shortcomings find? Aren't you bombarded by the very thing that you want to stop? If you have a lust problem, you're going to see every commercial where a girl is washing a car in a bikini, okay? Uh, whatever the case may be. If you have a sugar problem, all your commercials are going to be ice cream and cookies or maybe ice cream flavored. no cookie-flavored ice cream. I don't know. <laughs> That's how it works because he knows that the, the evil desires are in there and he just has to you know, put it out there and, and try and influence you. Uh, so that's uh, what we're to put off, uh, that former conduct. Uh, Colossians 3, 8, 9, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. Now I'm going to give you a list. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now, again, uh, whenever we talk about put off, put on, uh, the tendency is if you're struggling with one of these problems or another problem that you know needs to be put off, you're going to go home and try harder. And can I tell you something? Stop. Okay? It, yeah, it doesn't work. It, it lasts for a week, two weeks. If you're really good, maybe a month. Uh, but the reality is it's a heart problem. Who changes the heart? God does. So acknowledge to him, here's the problem. You know the problem. I'm seeing that I have the problem here. Lord, change me. Do the work that's necessary so that I can put to, into practice the right things instead of doing what I've so often tried to stop and can't. I can't do it. 
Without me, you can do nothing. Ah, we're agreeing with God. That's probably a good thing. Hebrews 12.1a, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares. Now, in that particular context, the sin that so easily ensnares is unbelief. You've just gone through chapter 11, and, and faith is what we're supposed to be walking by. And we want to make excuses. We want to justify. We just don't want to believe God that what we need to put off, we need to put off. Well, that's the problem. Okay, And so uh, that's what we're supposed to do is put these things off. Notice uh, in our verse back here in Romans, we're to put off the works of darkness. This includes all sins and sinful habits. It's so easy to say, well, this is wrong, but, you know, on the shade, on the sides here, we're going to kind of make it gray and stop. Anything that's sinful, any sinful habit, That's what he's saying here, the works of darkness. Why? Because it grieves the Spirit. In uh, Ephesians 4.30, and I'm pretty sure I didn't put that verse in here. That's okay. Uh, In Ephesians 4.30, it uh, specifically says that uh, a particular, in, in the context, is talking about how we talk to one another, how we communicate uh, with one another. We're to put off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and all that kind of stuff. All these things grieve the Spirit. They make the Spirit that lives in you kind of sorry that He does. Okay, that, that's the idea there. And then uh, let us put on. Well, within those same passages, as well as another one, we see this same concept taught again. In Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Wait a minute, that doesn't say put on. How do you change behavior? You have to change the way you think about it. So it includes being renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 24, and that you put on the new man. Now, what are you putting on? You're already a new creature in Christ, right? So you're putting on uh, uh, activity that is consistent with who you are. Now, who are you? Well, let's read it. Who is renewed? Oh, that's the wrong verse. Uh, put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Be who you are. How are you going to do that? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. How about Romans 12 too? And don't be conformed to this world. That would be the put off. But be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. This, this verse tells me that in every area of life, we're to learn how to think like God thinks about that area. Okay? So we can know what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, regardless of what it is. Every area of life includes every area of life. If you're not sure what that means, join us for a letter to the American church on the 28th, Saturday evening, uh, for that Bible study, because the first chapter just, whoa, yeah, I'm excited. (laughs) Uh, And then, of course, we have Colossians 3.10. It says, And you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So in both uh, Ephesians 4.24 and 3.10, we see this new man is created just like God. 
And so we need to learn how to think so that we can act according to who we are in him, a new creature. Hebrews 12.1b, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, so that's the put on. Run with endurance instead of complaining. And, oh, this isn't fear. I don't like this. No, put on the new man. Put on the behavior of the new man and run with endurance the race that God set before you. So that's the put on. Notice, what are we going to put on in our context? The armor of light. Armor is made for warfare. One of the things that I think the church in the past may have kind of put on one of those shelves over here so we can come back to it another time is the idea that we are involved in spiritual warfare. We want to talk about, well, no, we we don't want to talk about politics because you're not supposed to talk about politics, right? Uh, We want to complain about politicians, uh, forgetting that God's the one who raises up and puts down authorities, right? Okay, and that would include, yeah, even the politicians. Uh, We want to do all kinds of things and forget that behind, whether it be Democrat or Republican or whoever, behind them is a spiritual force, a ruler, an authority, a principality, a power that is trying to run their little uh, agenda. God knows what their agenda is. He uses them to accomplish things that he wants to accomplish, but... It's definitely not his agenda. And again, we go back to uh, the divine counsel concept there, okay? So we're involved in spiritual warfare. God's light provides divine protection in our spiritual battles. If you're not sure of that, read Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, the temptation of Christ. Uh, Notice in those passages, Jesus is always concerned with doing what God wants him to do as revealed in his word. Now, after 40 days, is he hungry? Sure he is. But he's not worried about his hunger, what he feels as though he needs at that moment. He's concerned with, what does God say about this? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's what's important here, okay? Because we're in spiritual warfare, not just hungry warfare, okay? And then notice... Uh, Jesus, of course, is the true light. In 1 John 1, 5, it says, This is the message we, uh, which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So if we're putting on the armor of light, we're, we're putting on who we are in Christ by the power of the Spirit, and we're living that way. Uh, You might remember that in Ephesians chapter 6, we have the full armor of God. It says... Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice it does not say we uh, war against Joe Biden and the Democrats and the leftists and, and the LGBTQ and, 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 and. No, no. It's against spiritual authorities and powers. Now, when we talk about the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, 11 to 12, it includes truth. Why do we need to be in the Word of God? Why do we need to be putting the Word of God into us? Because it is truth. 
and everything. We, we come back to that. That's our foundation for judging everything, whether it's good, acceptable, and pleasing to God. Okay? We have righteousness. Uh, now, we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness, so we're recognizing that our righteousness is based on who Christ is and what He did, but it ought to be becoming part of our practical everyday living also. Okay? Uh, we see the readiness to share the gospel. Uh, Lynn got a text tonight from a young lady that she teaches piano to. And when she teaches piano to this young lady, college age, uh, they talk about anything and everything. Now, Lynn is not in agreement with some of the practices of this young, unsaved girl, but Lynn has had such an effect on her that now that she's too busy to take classes, uh, I mean, to take piano because of her education, stage of life, right? She texts Lynn and said, you know, I just really miss talking to you. Good. That's the kind of relationships we should be building with those that God brings into our life. Why? For the purpose of letting our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify God, our Father who is in heaven. Okay? So the readiness to share the gospel. How about faith? I don't know about you, but the more I learn about faith, the more I recognize it's so much more than just believing a particular message or about a particular person. It is the, it's woven into the fabric of everything that we do in life. Again, go, let's go back to the truth. We, real, we recognize that we're uh, allowing us to be transformed by the Word of God so that we might know what God's will is when it comes to raising chickens. Huh? Every area of life. Pastor's talking about uh, the soil, knowing what its job is. Okay, does the soil have a mind? No, but it's programmed into the creation to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, that kind of a thing. So therefore, we come back to this truth and we start believing what it says getting to know it well enough where we can say how it applies in day-to-day -day living. And then, of course, obviously, we have the Word of God as our, our sword and the helmet of salvation. This is uh, having the mind of Christ, okay? Uh, we're not just talking about reviewing a couple of verses and thinking somehow that's going to get us through. It's having the mind of Christ so that we might walk with God in a way that's pleasing to Him. So it goes on to say, let us walk properly. If you will, this is kind of the put on. Um, but it says, as in the day, to live in a way that's pleasing to God. That's what this is all about. The outward life that is consistent with our new life in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 5.27 says that He might present her to Himself, uh, talking about Christ presenting the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, in, in the context, he has been washing her with the water of the word. Okay, so yeah, we have the messages on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Hopefully you're doing some devotions and stuff like that. But what's the purpose of all of that? so that each and every part of the body of Christ, the church, is being washed and conformed, transformed, conformed to uh, what you're supposed to look like as a Christian. 
And, and that's the idea there. How about Second uh, Peter 3.14? Therefore, beloved, looking forward to the things, uh, to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blemish. And again, the, we do have some personal responsibility for this sanctification process. We can't do it, but we sure can resist it. And what he's saying is, don't. Don't resist it. When you see you got a problem, get in there and talk to God about it, and then by faith, go and do as you should do because you're a new creature. So an outward life that is consistent with our new life in Christ. Uh, notice, let us walk properly as in the day, not in, and he gives us a small list here. Number one, revelry. This is komos. It's used of uh, military or athletic victory celebration. Uh, it is interesting if you ever look at some athletic celebrations. Remember one guy, he intercepted the ball and he's running towards the end zone and he's got the ball out like this and he drops it one step before he gets into the end zone. He was celebrating. Yeah, wrong time to celebrate, okay? He, he was involved, if you will, in revelry. How about drunkenness? The word here is not meth, as in what we see in southern Missouri, but methe. Uh, it is used of intentional, habitual drunkenness. And again, let's not believe the lie of the world. Well, he's an alcoholic. I understand, okay? My dad was a quote-unquote alcoholic. He made choices, to drink, to get drunk. He made choices to drink, to get drunk. He made choices to drink, to get drunk. And there came a point where his body uh, kind of needed that drink the next day to, to get up and get moving again. And then it came to the point where unless God worked in his life, that's where he was living. Okay? It is like choosing foolishness. You choose foolishness instead of wisdom. And then you choose foolishness. And then you choose foolishness. And before you know it, you can't even see the wisdom side of things. You just know that what's in front of you, this foolishness, is the only way to go. When, no, there is another way to go, but you can't see it anymore. Okay? So you can talk about they're habituated. We say they're addicted, right? But this drunkenness is intentional habitual drunkenness. The reality is, is my dad uh, buried himself in a bottle because of bitterness. Life didn't work out the way he thought it should have and a lack of faith. Okay, how about lewdness? This is coite. Uh, literally, it means a couch or a bed or a bedroom, and it is used of going to bed with, a bed with someone of the opposite sex. It is used in both honorable and a dishonorable sense. So it could be talking about uh, marital relations. It could be talking about sexual immorality. And obviously, in this particular passage, it is dealing with the concept of sexual immorality. Uh, then we get to... Uh, that was lewdness. Then we get to lust. This is azulgeia, uh, basic meaning of shameless excess, the absence of restraint. And again, I wouldn't suggest that anybody uh, get involved in anything that in uh, that uh, goes in this direction. But I can tell you from past history, uh, my own my dad's, that uh, when we start talking about the sexual immorality thing, uh, this is a, just a fantastic description. Uh, meaning of uh, shameless 
excess, absence of restraint. Why do you think we're now grooming kids in libraries with drag shows. Uh, we, we have to have this mandatory uh, sex ed program in Illinois, which in the first few pages, the material is pornographic. Why? Because we must lead these kids into this kind of mindset. Why? Because we're not fighting against J.B. Pritzker. It is spiritual warfare. I sent Pastor a video this morning. Uh, Mark, what's his last name? Driscoll. Yeah, I knew it was something like that. <laughs> um, he's talking about the spirit of Babylon. Again, uh, the reason why I sent it to Pastor is because it's directly related to what we uh, are studying on uh, Wednesday night. But he said there's three things that the spirit of Babylon does. First of all, we want to shut down the church. Now, he was using Daniel and uh, another time period uh, where you're not allowed to worship God. Okay, now you, you can worship the devil. You can worship Baal, but you're not allowed to worship God. Okay, and then the second thing, oh, I, I said it just a little bit earlier, but it's gone to the other side of my brain now. Uh, and then the third thing was cut off the next generation. Well, spiritually, that's what they're trying to do is cut off the next generation. If we can influence these kids in this direction, then faith will not be an option. Now, mind you, that's not true because of God. But if most of our kids go through these kinds of sexual education classes, what do you think is going to happen by the time they're teenagers? Ay, 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 ay. Okay? So that's lust. How about strife? Eris. It refers to persistent contention. Petty disagreement. It sounds like Congress. I mean, um, I'm just saying, okay? Uh, not just Congress. Unfortunately, we see some of this even in the church at times. It is characterized by self-indulgence and egoism. There is no place for tolerance. Now, I don't know about you, but if that does not describe the political field today, okay, characterized by self-indulgence, egoism, there's no place for tolerance for a view that's different than mine. Ouch. And then we have envy, zealous. It uh, basically means heat or zeal. In a favorable sense, it's ardor. In an unfavorable one, it is jealousy. It's used of a husband or of God uh, or an enemy. And uh, whenever it's talking about an enemy, it's talking about malice. Okay. So that's what we're supposed to be putting off. How about the put on in verse 14? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's goal in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Can't do anything about yesterday, right? Now, it doesn't mean I can't deal with the relationships I may have hurt through sinful activity and stuff like that, but I can't change yesterday. It's, it's gone. Okay, I can concentrate on tomorrow. He goes on, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. So he wants to be more like Jesus. He is doing what he can to become more like Jesus. He's not just sitting back saying, go ahead, God, sanctify me. Let's see how that thing works. You know, he's involved. 
He's doing what he can. He's in the Word of God. He's praying. Uh, he's recognizing the things that he's going through. It's God's way of teaching him something about himself, something about God, something about mankind in general, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, notice God's finished work at His coming. First John chapter uh, three, verses two and three. It says, "Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure." So that brings us to uh, the work of sanctification to which we submit ourselves. Again, First uh, John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope in him, what hope? Someday Jesus is coming back. And when he, when he comes back, I'm finally going to be like him. I'm going to be all that I can be. No, <laughs> I'm going to be in practice what he saved me for. Well, if you have that hope, Purify yourself. Be about the business of putting off and putting on in submission uh, to God. Notice, through the Word, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. Uh, just as by the Spirit of the Lord, which is the next point. We are uh, uh, the work of sanctification to which we submit ourselves through the Word, by the Spirit, and then through discipleship and mutual edification. Uh, there's, there's an attitude that seems to be, not, and I'm sure it's not just in this church, but we see it from time to time in this church, where people need to be like me. I have arrived at least some position where people need to think like me, they need to be like me, and if they're not, well, then let's get rid of them. They, they shouldn't be able to be here because they're not like me. Please go back and look at the list just above this, the works of darkness, okay? Characterized by self-indulgence and egoism, no place for tolerance. We're supposed to be making disciples. What does that mean? Taking people that are not like me and helping them become a little bit more like me, recognizing there's someone up here a little bit further along in the path who's going to hopefully help me become more like them because we're all following Jesus Christ. Oh, so let's look at a couple of verses. Galatians 4.19. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Now, he's talking to people that he had a hand in them getting saved. And he goes, I'm laboring like with birth pangs to bring about maturity in your life. And then, of course, Hebrews 10.24 and 25 which I think is on the other page here. <laughs> uh, you might remember this is the verse that we know the second half real good. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the church, uh, the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we're supposed to be involved in mutual edification and making disciples. Number two, make no provision for the faith. Uh, for the flesh, sorry about that. For the flesh, uh, the word here, provision, is pronoia, uh, forethought, provident care or supply, providence or provision. Um, the deceitful heart and the enemy of your soul often 
causes believers to have wrong ideas about sin. I was first confronted with this when I became a youth pastor and one of the women in the church came to me and said, you know, my boyfriend's a believer and he thinks that uh, if we truly love each other, we ought to be able to show that love to each other. And he was talking about sexual immorality. And I'm sitting there going, believers think like this? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what we can, can convince ourselves of. And there's always an, uh, an argument that kind of presents it in the best light. And it's kind of like, no, it is sin. So we have our deceitful hearts and the enemy of our soul working on us and gives us wrong ideas about sin. Notice, because of lusts are allowed to linger, James 1, 14 and 15, we don't see sin as destructive. James 1 says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when sin has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, again, here we have a believer. He's tempted. Why? Because he wants something. And he's willing to believe the lies of the devil to get something that, hey, sin is pleasurable for a season. And then after that, the judgment. We don't always see sin as destructive until you start seeing what divorce does to a family. That kind of a thing, okay? When God says it's destructive, maybe we just need to believe him. Notice, uh, we're not to make any provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Stay away from them. Uh, you know, as soon as you say certain things that the Word of God says that you really shouldn't be doing, uh, well, you're just a legalist. Why does God give us rules? So we can follow a bunch of rules? No, to protect us. Uh, you know, he, he's the one that made us. He knows how everything works. And therefore, he tells us, yeah, y- y- you don't want to be doing that. Oh, yes, I do. No, you really don't. It will hurt you in the long run as well as, as, well as other people. So we shouldn't make any provision to fulfill the flesh, uh, for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And then, of course, notice the only way to overcome Now, this was not part of the commentary stuff, but I felt as though it was important. We've just talked about uh, waking up, putting off, and putting on. And whenever we deal with sins that you might be involved in, how do you stop? Well, I'm convicted. I want to stop. And it lasts for about two weeks. And and then what? Well, the Bible does really tell us. Uh, There's a whole lot more to it than just these two verses But these two verses kind of give us an overview. Uh, Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit. Let me give you another way of saying that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Uh, Let let me give you another way of saying that. But be filled with the Spirit. Wait a minute, I'll give you another way. Walk in truth. That's not enough. Walk in wisdom. Now, wait a minute. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. See what I'm saying? It says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
Or how about 2 Peter 1.4? By which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay? That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. You might be filled with the Spirit. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. The corruption that's in the world, and it gets us because of the things that we still want inside of us because we're not glorified yet. You want to overcome that? You need to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You need to uh, participate in the divine nature. And then you can overcome. Because according to Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, so that you can't do what you want to do. So stop being you, and start becoming who you are in Christ. Walk in the Spirit, and you'll overcome it. Okay, I went long tonight because I got on a couple of my little hobby horses there, so let's pray and I'll let you go. If you've got any questions, you can ask me afterwards. Father, we thank you. Thank you that truly you have made allowance and you've given us motivation. You have given us everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of you, and yet we still struggle sometimes walking in this world, forgetting who our true enemies are, forgetting our own deceitful hearts at times. And Lord, we, we want to please you, and we sometimes make all kinds of efforts to do so in our own strength. Thank you that you've told us what's necessary. Give us grace to walk accordingly for your honor and glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.